All right, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 8 will be our focus this morning as we look at the supernatural gospel. And this morning we're going to see God present the gospel, the supernatural gospel, in a, in a supernatural way. I don't know about you, but one aspect of life that uh, can trip us up, trip me up anyway in my thinking and my daily walk, is the fact that the unrighteous seem to prevail in this life. And uh, it would seem that they have all the money, they have all the influence, they have all the, the power and, and the positions, everything that goes along with that. And the Word of God really tells us that, well, that's the way life is <laughs> in this world in which we are living, at least in the near term anyway. There's an entire book of the Bible that is essentially addresses that kind of issue, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, book of Proverbs that we're studying in Sunday school mentions those kinds of uh, things as well. Well, Lately in our study in the book of Revelation, if you've been tracking with us as we make our way through, uh, we see that, well, that's even going to be the case in the tribulation period. As God is pouring out his wrath on the world, guess what? There's going to be a man who is literally indwelt by Satan ruling over this world. Uh, Satan and his minions will have absolute control over the economy. They will demand worship uh, of Satan and themselves, and they will literally kill anyone who doesn't go along with the program. So if we think it's bad now, just wait a little while and... Uh, Thank God that according to his word, the church will be raptured before this uh, tribulation period begins. However, uh, we are on a trajectory to this, so we can count on it uh, getting worse and worse in our, in our time in regard to evil and evil people kind of holding sway in this world. But... Thanks be to God that he gives us nuggets in his word that tell us that even in the midst of evil and evil ruling, God is still going to be victorious. And you and I can take that to the bank as God's word, that in the end, he is going to be successful. And that's what we're studying in Revelation chapter 14. It is, a, it is meant to be a chapter that is an, an encouragement to people uh, in the future and in our day today that God is going to be successful when all is said and done. He is going to implement his will and his uh, sovereignty over this world and life on this planet is going to be the way that he wants it to be and that's meant to encourage us today. And so that's kind of what our message is about this morning as we look to the very end of the tribulation period and we are encouraged that, that God is going to be victorious and also that God has a, as his, probably his number one desire is that people would trust in him and he's willing to even give 
the message of salvation in a supernatural way in order to accomplish that. So we find ourselves, of course, talking about these future things. Primarily, the book of Revelation is about the tribulation period from uh, chapter 6 through 19. All talks about this seven-year tribulation period. We find ourselves literally in the midst of that, probably as far as the narrative goes, somewhere close to the midpoint of the tribulation period as we're in one of our uh, breaks in the action, if you will, where we're looking at some other things and some other events that will take place during the tribulation period. And chapter 14 is really all about the destination of believers and unbelievers kind of at the end of the tribulation period. So in our narrative, we've seen the seal judgments. We've seen the trumpet judgments. I've proposed that those are probably in the first half of the tribulation. And then at the midpoint, we will see that the Antichrist, the false prophet, will set up an image of the Antichrist in the temple in Jerusalem. That's called the abomination of desolation. We know that's the midpoint of the tribulation, according to the words of Christ in the book of Daniel. That's the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And then we're going to see the bold judgments be poured out in the last half of the tribulation. But now we're in a break in the action and we're just kind of reviewing things that have happened and looking forward to some things that will happen at the end of the tribulation period. And so last time, if you'll remember verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14 describe these 144,000 Jewish witnesses that were introduced in chapter 7. Now we see them at the end of the tribulation. They've carried out their mission faithfully to God, being witnesses for him in the world during this tribulation period. And now they are seen as victorious in the end with the Lord Jesus Christ on Mount Zion. And we saw some characteristics of their life, that they were aware of their position in Christ as believers. This was uh, a means of motivating them to be faithful. And all of these characteristics, of course, apply very directly to our lives as believers. They were aware of their position in Christ. They were chaste, if you will. They were sexually pure before the Lord. Uh, which is a key to the Christian life. They followed the Lord wherever he would take them. Uh, They were willing to follow him and they were honest in their dealings with people like we mentioned in our Sunday school lesson this morning. They lived in the reality of God and his word. And so they, they were honest with themselves. They were honest with Uh, the people around them, it says in verse 5 that no lie was found in their mouth. And these are four uh, great keys to the Christian life for us in this day as well. And then we move on to another scene. We see that uh, right there in verse 6. I saw another angel. That's another, or that's the tactic that John uses, the, the method that John uses to say that, okay, now I'm seeing something else in the vision. And it it will be this delivery, a supernatural delivery of a supernatural gospel. 
uh, in, in this, we're going to see that God is very concerned, of course, with the salvation of people. Even in the midst of this tribulation period, even in the midst of pouring out his judgment, pouring out his wrath on the world, he is concerned that people trust in him. And we could easily lose sight of that. I know I personally can. I, I, you know, I see these judgments being poured out and you just kind of think, yes, these people are finally getting what they deserve. And, uh, and that might not be God's perspective on this. He wants these people to believe in him and trust in him. And that's what we see today. So we'll see the method of the delivery of the gospel, the makeup of the gospel, and kind of what, what is going to be the end result of that. But we begin with the method. Notice Revelation Chapter 14 and verse 6, it says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. An angel is pronouncing the gospel from mid-heaven. Mid-heaven is a description of kind of the sky around us. So this angel is flying through the sky around the earth. If we take this, take the Bible at its word for what is being said here, and he is pronouncing a gospel to the world. He's using it, even says he uses a loud voice there in verse seven, that this angel is literally flying around the world and pronouncing the good news to the world. If the Lord wants people to be saved. Uh, That should be very, very obvious to us. You know, we have had in this world in which we're living, the the church age or the dispensation of the church has lasted for uh, 2,000 years at this point in time. If we think that, uh, well, the day of Pentecost, somewhere around 34 to 37 uh, A.D., after the time that Christ died, perhaps somewhere in that range, we're getting pretty close to 2,000 years of God giving people the chance to trust in Christ before this tribulation period even begins. Uh, we have seen in uh, the book of Revelation these 144,000 witnesses. God chose, selected, directed 12,000 Jewish people from every tribe to essentially be like the 12 apostles, their mission that Jesus gave to them to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. I will be with you always and get people saved. Well, God is going above and beyond during the tribulation period. It's not just 12, it's 12,000 from every tribe, 144,000 apostle Pauls, if you will, going out into the world to give the message of salvation through faith in Christ and faith in God and what he's doing in this world. We have seen two witnesses who were in Jerusalem, literally calling down fire from heaven, causing droughts, causing it to not rain uh, for periods of time, all in an attempt to drive people to trust in God. And now we see a, a visible angel 
pronouncing the gospel uh, to the world around them. And now some people are going to make a big deal out of, out of this gospel and what is, what is being preached to them, uh, what is being preached here, and make some distinctions that we, we ought to be careful of. And we ought to be careful in our day about the gospel, according to the Apostle Paul, Galatians 1.8, notice what it says. Uh, Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, now if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And uh, so, just right from the get-go here, we're not seeing a different gospel. Because if we were, then this angel ought to be accursed. And of course, that, that isn't the case. So we can just kind of start with that presupposition. It's not really a presupposition, but we'll take that when we get to what this gospel is being preached. Well, it isn't something different from uh, what has been preached before. But the big takeaway, of course, is that God wants people to be saved. God wants people to trust in him. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants all people to change their mind about God. He wants all people to change their mind if they're thinking, well, there is no God. There is no consequence for sin. Repentance in that regard would be, uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, I recognize there is a God and that there is a consequence for my sin, and I ought to trust in the one who created me and is telling me about what sin is. That's repentance, changing your mind. It's not feeling sorry for your sin or not promising to never sin again or any of these kind of mixed up ideas that we could have about what repentance is. It's changing your mind about who God is and his really his method for salvation, at least in this, in this case. God wants people to do that. And notice that this heaven, this angel who's flying through the sky and pronouncing this gospel, notice it's an eternal gospel. He had an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to the earth dwellers, if you will. Uh, that term that we have seen throughout the book of Revelation describing those who have not believed, who are, who are not trusting in God, and the Bible tells us that those who are not trusting in God are going to be those who are taking the mark and worshiping Satan and all of these kinds of things. But clearly, uh, it would seem that there's going to be some kind of process of people taking this mark, and God is encouraging people to not do that. It, it would seem from Revelation that once you take that step, that it that might be the delineating mark. If you take the mark... That's uh, uh, claiming your allegiance to Satan and the world system, worshiping him. And there's got to be some kind of process there because God is still sending the witnesses, sending an angel even into heaven to pronounce, don't do that. Trust in God. 
and this is an eternal gospel. So what is so what does what exactly does that mean when it says that it's an eternal gospel? Does it mean that it's eternally uh, always precisely the same, or does it mean that it is a gospel that has eternal consequences? I would I would go. F- for that latter definition of an eternal gospel. It's a gospel that will have eternal consequences for you and for people. And it is a gospel, a euangelion is the the Greek term there that literally means uh, good news and that it has, as we have seen, eternal implications. The gospel always has, has always had, always will have eternal consequences for the hearers. And uh, we see that in Daniel 12, 2. Notice what that says. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The gospel has eternal consequences for people. Uh, One of the mistakes that is very prevalent in Christianity today, Christendom, I should say, because uh, uh, it's hard to imagine a Christian that isn't believing in hell because uh, as an eternal place of torment, the Bible is very clear. Christ himself spoke of a place of eternal punishment for those who will not trust in God. Mark 9, 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, words of Jesus, if your eyes cause you to stumble, throw, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus himself had a lot to say about this place of eternal torment. We, we disregard that or think that it doesn't exist to our own peril. Like we've mentioned before, that's kind of one of Satan's uh, number one tricks is to convince people that he doesn't exist, that even that God doesn't exist, that there's no consequences for our sin. Well, yes, there actually are, and the consequences are eternal. And so God makes every effort for humanity to be saved. Even preaching of a gospel by an angel flying around the world in the sky and people hearing it. And that's, that, that's what this word preach means. It means to enunciate or announce good news. It is the verb form of the, uh, the, the term gospel. It's giving the gospel. That's what it means to preach. And, it, and preaching doesn't always just mean giving people uh, what we think of as quote unquote, the gospel, you know, how to be saved from your sins and go to heaven when you die. Preaching is very much, has a, a lot more encompassed to it than that. It is the, the teaching or the giving of God's word, because after all, isn't all of this good news? Isn't everything that we're reading here good news? Isn't the fact that there is a God who created the world in six literal days and rested on the seventh good news? That sort of warms my heart 
that there is a that there's a creator of this that this isn't just random chance and we're just kind of here and what what is the point of this and it's terrible and then I'm going to die uh, that's no way to go through life good news is that God created you and he created the world and he has a plan for you and a plan for your life and he wants you to live in eternal bliss with him man that's that's good news isn't it good news that the holy spirit indwells us as Christians, as believers, and that he is with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and he will guide us in our walk with him. Man, that is good news. It's good news that we are one day going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and that that can happen at any moment of time, that he can come for us and take us back to the Father's house to be with him forever in these places that he's preparing for us. Now, we can't even imagine what that, what that really even is. Our imagination will not uh, attain to the level of the incredible nature of what that will be like one day. So the whole counsel of God's word is good news. Some of it is specifically geared towards making sure we understand how we, quote unquote, get to heaven when we die. But it's so much more encompassing than just that because like uh, Peter said in our scripture reading, he was quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 40 and verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God's word is eternal and has eternal consequences. All of it. Second Timothy three sixteen. all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so we ought to pay attention to all of God's word, know it in context and these kinds of things, of course, but it is all applicable to our lives when it's properly understood and put in its proper place. And notice that the gospel, this good news that is being preached by this angel flying around the world, pronouncing it in a loud voice, is for each and every single person on the planet uh, within the hearing of this voice. And it's going to be every person. Notice the language there at the end of verse 6, that he did this to every nation and tribe, and tongue, and people. Every single person uh, was eligible to hear this gospel and to trust in it. The, the, the Bible, particularly in this world in which we are living today, the gospel is applicable to every single person, Vladimir Putin included, uh, uh, the Democrats, Donald Trump, uh, just whoever your arch enemy is, they could be saved. They are eligible to be a saved person. The Bible could not possibly, could not possibly be any more clear about that. Uh, at Jesus's birth, Luke 2.10, the angels, again, pronounced to the shepherds that, that a savior was born in the city of David, a savior for all the people was being born. John 3.16, God so loved the world 
This is why uh, dispensationalism is more than just a pre-trib rapture and being pre-millennial. There's so much more to dispensationalism than just the timing of events. Uh, it, the dispensationalism is a literal interpretation, consistent literal interpretation of the Bible, uh, including the parts about going to heaven. John 3.16, God so loved the world, the cosmos, that means the planet and all the people on it. There's no other way to interpret that word cosmos. Uh, John 4.42, the Samaritans, uh, if you remember the woman at the well, she had a whole lot of issues in her life. Jesus came, spoke to her, gave her the good news. She believed it. She went and told other people that she had seen the savior of the world and the, these people that she told, according to John 4.42, knew that Jesus was the savior of the world. Again, the savior of the world had come to their city and had pronounced good news to them. First John 2.2, 2, Jesus' blood is a propitiation or a covering for the sins of the world the sin, not just our sins as believers, but as unbelievers also. Their sins are covered also. That's why any person can trust in Christ because his shed blood paid the penalty for the sins of the world. Literal interpretation of those words. First John 4.14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Not, an, not a subset of the world, but the world. The, Father, the Father's desire is for all people to be saved. All people to come to repentance. Second Peter 3.9 included in this. Uh, Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. God made it so that we can trust in what Christ did for us on the cross, not earning it ourselves, but trusting, believing in, putting our faith in what Jesus did on our behalf, not works, not keeping a set of rules and regulations, but simply trusting in what Christ did for us for all of the world. That's the message of Romans 1 through Three, all people are sinners and all people can be saved by trusting in Christ. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. The gospel is for all people because the eternal son of God shed his blood for the sins of the world. And that's what this angel, part of what this angel is proclaiming as he flies around the earth and presents the gospel to all people, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and all people are included in the hearing of this Gospel. So what exactly does is he preaching? What is the makeup 
of this gospel. We see that in verse 7. It says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Now, this is kind of a difficult passage for dispensationalists in some way. I guess we sort of make it difficult. Uh, as we're, we're trying to define what this good news is. And a common view that we'll come across in dispensational circles is that, there is a, that this is a different gospel being preached here, that there, there are several gospels that are preached throughout the Bible. There's the gospel of the kingdom. Well, that was preached during uh, Jesus's time. And then, well, now there's the gospel of grace. That's what we're teaching now. And then we'll have this eternal gospel during the tribulation period, and they will define them as separate gospels. And I kind of view that as a mistake, according to Galatians 1, 8, and 9. There's one gospel, and that's what's being preached. And so we have to kind of be careful and define our terms. Yes, there are some distinctions. There are some, perhaps some differences, but it's always the same. God is always, has always been, is now, and always will be the author of salvation. He is always the one who is saving us in every dispensation, every time from Adam until uh, Christ comes again, people are saved by believing in God for salvation. And there are, however, there are some nuances to what is actually being presented to people, but it's always trust. It's always based on faith and it, it is always faith in God, the one who is saving us. So that's what I would put that under the banner of the gospel, that it is eternal. It's unchanging. It has eternal consequences. But the content of what we are believing in kind of expands over time. And so let's kind of dive into this and and we'll go through some of the details here again, this angel is pronouncing with a loud voice. It's very clear that this is that this is an event that is taking place. This is a literal thing that this angel, as miraculous as it is, is going to be pronouncing this judgment he, or this gospel. He even does this with a loud voice, and he says, "Fear God and give Him." glory. That's kind of the the basis of this gospel, that people need to fear God and they need to give him glory. So what exactly is, does he mean by fear God? That's the Greek term phobos. We talked about this in Proverbs this morning, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, that's very similar to what is being presented here. We need to fear God. We need to understand who he is. That's what it is to fear him. We need to understand who he is. It's not to run away and be, be frightened of him, be scared and hide and uh, this kind of thing. No, it is an understanding of who he is, that he is all-powerful, and that 
we ought to have the desire to not make him upset. That's, uh, and as was mentioned in the break, uh, it's kind of like our fathers. If our fathers are doing the job of a father, we ought to have a healthy fear of our father, uh, our earthly father. A good lesson for those of us who are still fathers. Our young children in particular ought to have a healthy fear of their dad and not want to disappoint him, not want to go against his word because there's going to be a punishment on the other side if we do. And this is the same attitude that we ought to have of our heavenly father who is perfect, who doesn't, who isn't like our earthly father who might have done things in a wrong way. Our heavenly father is perfect, perfect in his adjudication of, of justice, perfect in his love, perfect in his caring, and all of these things. And we, but we, yeah, he's love, but he's also just. So we ought to understand that. We need to understand that. We need to fear God. That's what it means. And so when we fear him, that's kind of step one. That's the beginning of knowledge. And then we also, these people are called on to give him glory. The Greek term doxa, that's where we get our our term doxology uh, that we often quote at the end of the service. Those are doxologies. They are giving glory to God. There's several statements that do that in the Bible. And so these people are called on, and we too, as people living now, are called on to give glory to God. That's part of the gospel message. Give him approval. Recognize who he is recognize he's the the creator of the world, the author of salvation. He's the one I'm responsible to, and then submit to that. Give him the glory. Recognize him for the position that he is in. That's what is uh, being pronounced here by the angel. Step one of this eternal gospel message. Fear God and give him glory. Uh, the BDAG defines give glory as honor, as enhancement or recognition of status or performance. Oh, that's what it means to give God glory, to recognize his performance. Well, what did God do for me in terms of my salvation? Well, he did it all. Or recognize that fact. Recognize that Christ on the cross did everything for us and in fact, before he died, he even said, it is finished. So my uh, helping old ladies across the street or my giving money to church, my saying my prayers three times a day, uh, well, that sort of puts it in perspective when we see that Christ said on the cross, it is finished. He did it all on the cross I am giving him glory by trusting in that, recognizing that he is the one who did it all for us. Give approval to God for what he is doing in the world. That's what is being pronounced here. Hey, earth dwellers, there's a God in heaven. He created everything. He is, he is therefore eligible to judge the world you need to fear him and you need to submit to his plan for this world as it is being carried out right now, even in the midst of this tribulation. Yes, it, it is awful. 
God recognizes that, that it's really terrible for these people, but they need to submit to his plan for this world. And if they would do that, he will give them eternal life. And why should they do this? Why should they fear God and give him glory? Why should they understand who he is and submit to his plan and purpose for this world? Well, it tells us right there in verse seven, because the hour of his judgment has come. The, the, the out, it's now. <laughs> this is it. This is your last chance, essentially. The tribulation period has begun. God's wrath is being poured out. Uh, in terms of where we are in Revelation, uh, I don't want that to be taken out of context. The tribulation hasn't begun now. Where these people are seeing the angel flying around the earth, the tribulation has begun. You need to submit, trust in, believe in God and his plan for the world because his judgment is being poured out at this very moment. The end is near. This is essentially it. This is your last chance to trust in God and his plan and purpose for this world. And so what is the eternal gospel today? Guess what? It's very similar. We may not uh, pronounce it in these same exact words that this angel is using in verse 14 or chapter 14 and verse 7 and why is that well because our circumstances are different than today than they will be during the tribulation period so we so what we might say to a person is different now than it will be during the tribulation period just like it was different when Jesus was literally walking the earth with the ability to bring the kingdom to the nation of Israel. The message was slightly different, but it's the same. It's still under the banner of the gospel, trusting in God, trusting in his plan and purpose for the world at that specific time. So we'll just put the gospel under that umbrella and say that it is, that it's unchanging. It's God offering it to you and trusting in his offer of salvation. So what is for our uh, context today, the gospel is fear God, know who he is, know who you are in relation to God. That's part of a child's fear of their father is, or their, their mother for that matter, as well as children. We ought to fear both of our parents, but, and we do that because we know who they are in relation to us, they have power over us as, as little children. They, they can inflict pain on us uh, from time to time if we are uh, disobedient. And so we ought to fear that. We ought not to want to receive that. And uh, so part of that is knowing that we're a sinner. That's Romans 1 through 3. All the world has sinned against God. Not one of us is able to save ourselves. Not one of us is able to uh, seek after God on our own and, and just figure it all out and be saved. That is an impossibility, according to Romans uh, 1 through 3. Jews and Gentiles alike, all people. There isn't a single one who's ever lived as a human on this planet who's able to attain to that. 
And so that's part of fearing God. We need to know that we're a sinner and we need to give him glory. We need to submit to God's plan and God's way of salvation. And God's way of of salvation in this world is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's not through any other method, not through any good work that we could possibly do. It's only through what Christ has done. So God is sovereign over the world. We need to recognize who he is, who we are in relation to a perfect, sinless God, and then submit to, recognize what he is doing in the world, and that is saving the world through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So our gospel is essentially the same. Fear God and give him glory. And when we do that, fearing God plus giving him glory, that equals believing in him. That equals trusting in him. Romans 3, 23 through 26 sums it up more perfectly than I can. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. Notice what the gift is. The gift isn't faith. The gift is being saved, being justified. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, recognizing who God is and who we are and trusting in his plan equals salvation by faith alone, by grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's God's plan for the, for today. If we want to boil it down into just a couple of verses, a couple of ideas of of what somebody has to believe after they recognize that they're a sinner separated from God, well, what do I tell them? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 is a good place to go. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. We're separated from God. Christ died for us. We have to believe in what God did for us. Acts 14, 15 uh, says, uh, Paul says, man, why are you doing these things? Uh, When he gave the gospel there in Ephesus, uh, the people kind of did some miracles there and people kind of, they were thinking that he was uh, a God a, a with a small g so they began worshiping him and barnabas uh it says men why are you doing these things we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living god who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them very similar very very similar to this message that is being preached by the angel here The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of the waters. And when we do this, this leads to worship. 
recognizing God for who he is. That's what worship is. That, that's part of being wrapped, that's wrapped up in faith. What faith is, recognizing God for who he is, that is an act of worship. He created all things, and therefore he is worthy to judge all things. That, that's going to be, of course, very prominent during the tribulation period because his judgment, his wrath is being poured out on the world. And people will, I guarantee you, will say, why is this happening? Why is God allowing this to happen in this world? Well, he, he's not only allowing it to happen, he's doing it because he is the creator and he is able to do these things because the creation and the people in the creation are against him and therefore he's judging them. We saw that in the very beginning of this tribulation period in uh, Revelation in Revelation 4, 11. Psalm 33 verses 6 through 9 says something similar. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in their storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You know, the, uh, the fact that God created the world in six literal days out of the word of his mouth isn't just Genesis. It's throughout the Bible, even in the Psalms. And since he did that, he has the right to judge. So this angel who's flying around the earth in the heaven, people can see him. He's pronouncing with a loud voice to the people, fear God, give him the respect that is due, recognize his plan for the world and uh, submit to the plan, recognize God's status as the creator and his sovereignty and trust in it. Very similar message to what we give to people as well. Uh, it just couched in a little bit different uh, words, but the same message. God is our creator. We are sinners separated from him, and he offers salvation to all the world through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so what is going to be the manifestation? What is going to be the outcome of this gospel going out into the world? Well, a lot of people are going to trust in it. We'll see that in Revelation 15, but a whole lot of people are not going to trust in it, and it's going to lead to judgment. Revelation 14 and verse 8 says, and another angel, a second one, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Babylon is fallen. It even says this angel, another angel. So now we have two, uh, a second angel who is flying around and pronouncing ascent now judgment on the world. He says it twice. Fallen, fallen. Pipto is the Greek term. Uh, an aorist, active, indicative, indicating that yeah, this is a sure thing. Uh, <laughs> even though this is looking forward to the future, it's as if it's a completed act. Babylon is fallen. Judgment is certain. 
on this world. And judgment is certain for uh, us now, if we have not believed in Christ. uh, John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not judged. One, one, uh, One circumstance there, one requirement, believe. That is the only requirement. Now, uh, as I've mentioned, there's a lot of things wrapped up in that belief. We have to know a few things in order to believe. We have to be trusting in the right Jesus. We're not trusting in the Jesus of Sung Young Moon and the Unification Church. We're not trusting in the Mormon Jesus or the Muslim Jesus or any other Jesus than the one that's in the Bible. That kind of goes without saying. The second person of the Trinity, eternal God the Son, that's the one that we're believing in. But uh, when we understand some of these things and we've sinned against God and and Jesus' death is the only way to be made right with him, all of that's wrapped up in belief. But he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. It's as if it's already happened. Why? Why? Because he didn't go to the right church, didn't say enough prayers, didn't uh, d- do enough good things so that his good outweighed his bad. No. It, John says it again for the third time. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Salvation is conditioned on one thing and one thing only, whether or not you have trusted in Christ and the judgment can therefore be pronounced as certain if you haven't done that because it's not subjective it's objective it's concrete it's right here before you which path will you choose in terms of your eternal life god's path the reality of the situation that it's only through christ or your own reality Anything other than that is your own reality. Earning it through good works. There is no God. There is no consequence from sin. I can get it through the Hindu religion, Muslim, just as long as I'm good. Just as long as I'm a good Jew, a good Muslim, a good Hindu, God will surely let me in, right? No, that is your own reality. God's reality is that there's that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through Christ. John 14, 16. And if you don't trust in that, you will fall. The world in the future is not, in large part, going to trust in that, and they're going to be judged. So God can pronounce judgment on Babylon, it says here. Now, Babylon the Great, it even says. So, wait a second. Where did this come from? What? Who is Babylon? Certainly, that must be uh, something that we can just make up the meaning of because it's so strange. But Babylon actually is going to play a very a prominent role in the end times. And if we take the Bible with any amount of seriousness at all, it's got to be Babylon. Uh, do we really think that John, the apostle, who's already been exiled, he's already been put into, according to tradition, a burning pot of oil to kill him, and somehow he survives that. 
Uh, and then he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And he, I, I'm just so scared of the Roman authorities. I just don't know what I'm going to do after God delivered me from the boiling pot of oil. Uh, I don't want to write Rome down, so I'm going to disguise it as Babylon. Does that, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't think the apostle John would do that. And, and by the way, is he, is Jesus is the one who's revealing this to John. Is he kind of whispering to John? Uh, I know I said Babylon, but, or I know I said Rome, but write it as Babylon. So nobody really knows what it is. That, no, that doesn't make any sense. It's Babylon. It's a place in the Middle East that it, when we study the Bible, we know that, that evil is sort of centered around this city of Babylon in the narrative of the Bible. So it really doesn't make much sense to switch horses in midstream here and then say, oh, Babylon is America, Babylon is Rome, Babylon is this, that, or the other thing, other than Babylon is literally Babylon. And we're going to see a a greater description of that in uh, Revelation 17 and 18. Several places are actually mentioned in the book of Revelation. Patmos, well, was John actually exiled to a literal place or is it, is it just some fantasy thing? Patmos is Patmos. He wrote seven letters to seven literal churches that existed during that time. We've seen Jerusalem being described. Now it was even, uh, they even told us when we're going to use allegorical language, but it was describing Jerusalem as being a place of evil during the end times or where evil things were taking place anyway. And so when we see Babylon the Great, the exact same description that Nebuchadnezzar himself used to describe Babylon in Daniel chapter 4, well, I think it's Babylon when it's using that descriptor. All of the geographical places described in the book of Revelation are literal geographical places that we can go to on this planet today. All the seven cities of the the churches, Patmos is a literal place, Jerusalem, of course, is a literal place, Babylon is a place, and it's going to rise to prominence in the end times. This uh, uh, city is going to essentially become, at some point, uh, the world capital. And so why is Babylon being judged? Well, it led, it has led uh, the world in rebellion against God, uh, really beginning in Genesis chapter 11. If you remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they went to the east and when the people left, uh, when they wanted to, decided to not go throughout all the world and be fruitful, they settled in a place that became known as Babel. Well, when in the Hebrew, when we read Babel in our Old Testaments, the, the Greek term is exactly the same as Babylon. Not sure why we change it. But at any rate, in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel is in Babylon. And that's where the, the rebellion against God and God's system for the world uh, of trusting in him for salvation started to manifest itself at that tower in 
uh, Babel. And then when God confused the languages and people began to spread out around the world, well, they took their false religion with them, their mother-child cult, uh, if you will, a system of false worship, and that spread throughout the entire world. And we see that in the religions of the world today, that nearly all of them have some system of a mother-child cult, even under the banner of Christendom in the Catholic Church, uh, they have something that's very similar. And so that's why people in the Reformation time are going to come along and say, well, Rome must certainly be Babylon because we see this same false religion, mother-child cult. So when it says Babylon in the Bible, it means Rome because that's the most prominent thing today. And well, that's a mistake. Uh, when it says Babylon, it means Babylon, and it just so happens that Rome is the most prominent proponent of that today, but nevertheless, in the future, Babylon is going to return to its prominence of uh, evil and anti-God religion, as is depicted here in the book of Revelation. And they're going to lead the world uh, in the tribulation period, lead the world against God. That's what Revelation 17 and, and 18 is all about and the judgment that's going to be poured out upon the, uh, upon the world. But never forget that even though uh, the world is a very evil place today and it will continue to progress towards evil and rebellion against God, people are still going to be delivered even in this tribulation period, just like they are today, by trusting in God and his plan for the world. Revelation 15 and verse 2, John says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. There is going to be a vast multitude of people who believe in what this angel is saying, and they will be delivered from the judgment that is being poured out on the world. And you and I can be delivered from this judgment, from the judgment that is due to us because of our sins. For the wages of sin is death. Our sin earns death. It earns separation from God. That's what a wage is. When we, we go to work, we do work for our boss. He gives us money in return. Uh, in terms of sin, we commit sin against God. He pays us with the wage of death. The good news is that we can be delivered from that death by trusting in what the work that God did, that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Christ did all of the work in our place in paying for sins. When we trust in that, he gives us life. He delivers us from judgment. John 5, 
24, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense. The moment that you believe or trust in what God is doing through Jesus Christ, you have eternal life and does not come into judgment. But if you didn't get it yet, (laughs) Jesus goes on, has passed, perfect tense, past action, ongoing consequences, has passed out of death into life. And so we receive salvation the same way that these people will. We hear the good news that God is the creator of the world, that he's just, he's perfect, he's righteous. He wants us to live with him forever. And he did all of the work in saving us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And the moment that we trust in that message, he delivers us from death into life. We escape the judgment and we will enjoy eternal bliss with him. These people in the future, very similar message, even more information. They already know that Christ has come into the world, that he died for sins. And the choice is to reject all that and believe in Satan. Go with Satan's version of reality. They're, they're faced with a diametrically opposed options. And that God in this angel is pronouncing to them, go with God's reality. Go with the true reality that God is in this world. He created it and now he's judging it. And if you will just submit to him, he will give you eternal life that we'll see in Revelation 15. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible book of Revelation that is so pertinent to our lives today. Even though it's describing the future, we can take away lessons that just come right home to us where we are sitting. We thank you for making salvation such a simple uh, idea the simple idea of trusting in what you have done for us. And however, even as believers, we would be foolish to recognize that it isn't simple for some other people to trust in that. As human beings, we have an innate desire to depend on ourselves and our own works. And in fact, most of the world is is very much like that, that we have to do things our own to get ahead in this world. But when it comes to salvation, it is the exact opposite. We can do nothing because you have done everything. And I just pray that if there's any person here who has not trusted in you, that that your Holy Spirit would continue to convict them and help them to trust in you because the judgment is certain. Your word says that we've already been judged if we haven't believed in you, but you still give us time because of your graciousness. And I just pray that you would help people to trust in you who have not. And for those who have, I pray that you would help us to trust in you more each day, trust in your word to guide us in this world, guide us in this life that we have to live so that you truly will get all the glory in the end. And we pray this in Jesus' name holy name. Amen.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.